Welcome to the Experts Only podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital, where we explore the intersection of energy, innovation and finance. Our host is Clean Capital's co-founder and former Federal Chief Sustainability Officer, John Powers. Learn how Clean Capital is revolutionising clean energy finance and find more episodes at cleancapital.com, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Welcome to Clean Capital's Experts Only podcast. We're joined today by Chris Button, who's a global head of the Clean Technology and Renewables Group and the Internet of Things in the Investment Banking Division with Goldman Sachs. Chris and I are going to dive into a variety of topics today, but really focus on technology, talk about where clean energy has come and where it's going, and also explore how technology developments in things like the Internet of Things and the evolution of the technology space is affecting the market. Chris, thanks so much for joining us here at Clean Capital's Expert Only Podcast. Really excited to talk to you and learn about you know some of the really interesting things that you've seen being out in the valley and at the heart of the, the clean energy space. But really, first, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your personal journey, You know how you ended up at Goldman Sachs, how you ended up in the clean energy space. I know you've got a a fascinating history in California as a double athlete at Stanford, both in football and as a record-holding pole vaulter on the track team. So how did you go from that to clean energy? Thanks, John. First of all, thanks for having me on this podcast. The journey, so it's not a natural transition. You know, I came out of school here and, you know, the goal was really to try to follow a passion. The passion actually led me into technology. And so I spent a lot of time in the technology space and finance, technology, investment banking. And that evolution, that evolved into clean energy for two reasons. One was we started to see really interesting things going on from the tech side and what we called back then, you know, we were kind of confused between alternative energy, energy technology, clean energy. No one really knew what to say. But it was the solar companies coming from a semiconductor angle or the networking companies networking up utility grids or software companies trying to figure out how to be more efficient with energy consumption. And so it was really from a technology angle that I got interested into the clean energy sector. And that was one side of the passion. The second one, obviously, is the end game in clean energy or is really a very important one. Uh, and at that point, you know, we had one child and two. And, you know, I was thinking at that point, I was starting to think more generationally about like what impact can I have, however small, on my children's future. And it was sort of the marriage between passion for my kids and passion for technology. Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, I hear from a lot of folks about the mission that, that clean energy brings. And I want to come back at some point and talk more about the tech side and especially with your role focusing on Internet of Things. But you know, let's start off talking about some of the, the fact that you've been really engaged with really some of the most innovative companies in Silicon Valley, Tesla, SolarCity, Google, and, and so many others. What have you learned watching those companies and more importantly, from their leadership perspective, what have you seen that that's worked, both positive and then what hasn't worked on the negative side? That's a really good question. I mean, we've seen, I've been in the industry for 18 years, I think now, investment banking that is seeing a lot of different companies build from scratch to mega businesses like Tesla and Google for that matter. And other companies have footfalls along the way. The ones that have just had tremendous impact on me in how they built their companies were the ones that really did have, as you put it before, like the mission statement, like they had a good business model, no question about it, but they had a mission and a plan 
to do something extraordinarily innovative. Just using Tesla as an example, to think that that company became as successful and as it has become in 2008 or nine, when the market was falling apart and auto companies and auto suppliers were going out of business and and Elon was taking kind of a counterpoint and saying, electric vehicles make so much sense. If we do this, there will be a tremendous amount of demand for it. It'll be good for consumers. It'll be good for the environment. It's the right thing to add more technology to the vehicles. It creates a better product. But it was a total mission-driven focus for that company. And they've proven, I think they've proven it correct. But I mean, the naysayers and when the market was falling apart for that business in particular, and Solar City is probably one of those as well, were significant. And so it was the passion, the mission, and the drive, and ultimately the fundamentally a, a really good business model and product that turned you know Tesla, what are they, 50, 60 plus billion dollar market cap now today. Yeah, I heard JB Straubel speak recently, and he put up the picture of him working on the first Tesla in the garage, right, and talked about how it came out of his experience working on solar cars in college, right? Being part of a solar car challenge and then realized that there was a real need in batteries. And, you know, watching that story progress and the growth that companies had and now, you know, acquiring Solar City and really making the whole energy package together is it's the future and it's super exciting. Well, it's funny to look back and say, everybody's just in a Tesla today or an electric vehicle and they drive it and they say, wow, that is a fantastic experience. It's amazing driving. 10 years ago, I would say the majority of people I talked to say that will never, ever make sense. Like, I'm going to get stuck. I'm not going to make it. I'm going to have tremendous range anxiety. There's no way these vehicles can be at affordable price point. You know, the batteries are going to die after a couple of years because that's what consumer electronics batteries do. Right. None of that has proven true. And I think you'll hear a lot more people talking about how exciting electric vehicles are today. And it's really about, you know, being a better product. And where companies don't succeed, I think where they have this like great mission is they don't get through that initial hurdle of negativity about a new technology. And it's, that's pretty prevalent in the clean technology space. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that because so many interesting technologies and clean energy that have blossomed and then faded, right? And it, it seems like of the markets, you know, when you develop an app, an app can quickly kick in and you're developing a uh, you know, Pokemon Go, all of a sudden you've got 100 million downloads in a blink of an eye. But with clean energy, you're dealing with regulatory hurdles. You're dealing with 50 different states in their, you know, their energy regimes. What are some of those, those companies that have succeeded, you know, what are some of the traits that you think, I guess, cut across them? And then also let's, I want to talk a yeah. little bit about the financing side, because it's not just about financing the companies, but also about the projects themselves and understanding how those projects work? Well, I think in clean energy, clean technology, one of the common traits, not amongst all companies, but amongst a lot of the, the endeavors is it takes a lot of capital. It takes a lot of capital to ramp these business up. It takes a lot of capital to keep them growing. And so the common trait amongst the successful companies is their ability to bring investors in and at the same time drive down the cost to operate or the cost to sell so that it becomes a good investment. In many cases, well, in some, I shouldn't say in many cases, in, in some cases, getting to that point takes more capital than is available and those companies tend to fade away. In Tesla's case, luckily enough, they had a founder who was really willing to bet the ranch 
on that business. And it turned out to be the right bet. And it's turned into quite a successful outcome. And he has a lot of investors who are equally passionate and supportive of what that company is doing. So that's extremely important. Not every company has that. Not every concept has that. Not every idea that may seem like a good one to some people gets to the point where it becomes an idea that now looks good to everybody. Your other point about the heavy regulated environment in clean tech, that's a clear hurdle. I mean, there's some consistency to the regulatory, but there's also some unpredictable nature of that regulatory environment, depending on what our political climate looks like. Absolutely. Okay. So following up on that, you know, I think looking at some comments you made about a year ago at the Fortune Energy event, you really talked about the need for certainty, right? And I think we're seeing a lot of uncertainty in the market, whether it be the new administration, whether it be things like the Cineva trade case, but there has also been such a really fascinating last few years of growth and momentum, not just for solar, but for other technologies, for the distributed generation space as a whole. Where are we today in the idea of certainty? You know, what level of certainty is out there? And then what can we do as an industry to sort of enhance that certainty? When I mentioned at the Fortune event that there is a lot of focus on how to calculate your model returns, and if there's a regulatory element to it, that those returns, that investment return profile is dynamic, and that's a hard asset to invest in. Right. That's where that comes from. I think I might have said something something dumb like intermittent, some kind of you know reference to called alternative energy in the past. But the lack of a long-term ability to calculate return on an investment, especially if it's in solar or wind, and it's got a 5, 10 to even longer investment horizon, if there is something that happens in that time frame that can turn your investment upside down, that's nerve-wracking. Now, all that said, I think solar and wind has continued to grow from a deployment standpoint. What I am certain about is that that's going to continue. The renewable-generated energy is going to continue to grow. I think we're going to have a increase now in the deployment and use of energy storage as a key feature in that, that right. ecosystem. I do think that we are past the point of no return in electric vehicles, which their use of energy storage in a reliable, safe way will have a positive contribution to the deployment of stationary storage in the electrical grid. I think we're past that point of return. The only negative comments we hear in the EV market, or at least I hear in the EV market nowadays, is really the state subsidies or federal subsidies are about ready to go away. So. You know, will anybody spend money if they don't get the incremental three to five to seventy five hundred dollars in buying their car? It's a valid point, but I also think that the price of you know energy storage or the batteries inside is going to keep continuing to decline over the next five years. And if you believe that, which is exactly what happened in solar modules right. pricing, that's kind of a non-event. So I think we're past the point of return on. I think from a certainty standpoint, we're past the point of return on continued adoption of EVs, continued growth in solar, and continued growth in wind. It's the equity investments in these that has paused, and it's paused because of this lack of certainty. And it's the equity investment we need to return to growth because there's plenty of debt available for these projects. Yeah, that seems to be, on the solar side at least, in many cases, it's trying to find the tax equity that's the hold up on a lot of these opportunities. And solar is getting to the point now where hopefully soon it doesn't even require it. And we can get to cost competitiveness without it, right? And I, you know, it's interesting to hear your the position on batteries. I mean, when we see the Gigafactory 
really humming here in the next few quarters, you know, that would be such a influential change to the market as a whole and keep driving down those costs. But, you know, with that, there's been efforts like Solar City, for instance, had the solar bonds. You had the rise of the yield codes and then the fall of the yield codes. But when you really do look at these deals over time, they are relatively stable. If you've got good off takers, you know, you can have pretty solid returns. With looking at, for instance, the yield codes, even though they stumble, do you see that model coming back? Do you see changes in that model coming back? I'll have to say I do think that model will come back. I don't know when, but I do think it'll come back because it's a valid structure. Right. It had a runaway moment. It had its own kind of thermal runaway moment, but it's a valid structure. I think the issues that were in the first yield code go around was a hunger for too much growth in those structures, which can significantly compound on themselves and requires then a ton of capital. I think the mar- the scale in the market for initial yield codes were relative, and I'm talking about renewable ones. I mean, obviously, there's some that had more traditional generation in them too, which could get to bigger scale. But for just renewables, if you don't have the scale and you start off with a small cash flow number, you need to have high growth to get to reasonable valuations. It's better that they start at a higher baseline distributable cash flow number and grow at a lower rate. It just, to me, it just makes more sense. So I do think they'll come back and they'll come back when we have businesses at scale to do it again. But in the meantime, there's nothing wrong with the securitization market. I think that will continue to be a good source of capital for these players. Yeah, absolutely. And I think more and more institutionals are getting more comfortable with those type of investments, which is great. So let's change focus a little bit from purely clean energy. I want to talk about sort of your other hat, which is the Internet of Things. You know, I sit here in my home office surrounded by multiple pieces of equipment, many of them created by Apple, but also my Nest thermostat and so much else that's connected to the Internet today. When I looked at the recent Goldman Sachs video on the Internet of Things, you guys anticipated that by 2020, there'll be 50 billion connected devices, which is unbelievable. So talk a little bit about what trends you're seeing in that market. And then I also want to hear your thoughts on, you know, what opportunities then there are in the clean energy space there. Sure. The way I see the IoT market, the Internet of Things market, is not really a category unto itself. If it was a category unto itself, it could be a consumer perceived market. But the way I see it, it's more of the next evolution of technology. So if we wanted to create three or big evolutions in technology, there was the fixed moment, which is kind of the 80s and 90s. Right. There was the wireless moment, which encapsulated cloud, which was sort of the 2000s. And then there's the, I think, the things trend, which becomes now we've, we're have we harnessing any device to be connected into that mobile network as opposed to just more enterprise class deployments. I think it's more of a third wave of technology. And the tie back into the clean energy and clean tech space is that Internet of Things encompasses a whole bunch of industries to me. So it's deploying and bringing technology, not just in the tech space, but in all the industries that probably have had a less a pervasive deployment of modern technology, cloud-based solutions into them. So right. industrial manufacturing and robots, why shouldn't they be sending their data and information back to the cloud to be processed and analyzed and optimized for that infrastructure? In automobiles, there's already a tremendous amount of data being captured in automobiles. And certainly as we go toward a more autonomous future, there's going to be even more. All of that is going to be 
value in looking at the data captured and analyzing it and providing feedback both in the manufacturing side, the services side, and for the customers themselves. And we always kind of thought about clean technology, clean energy that way. We just hadn't folded it into that IoT concept yet. But if you think about it, IoT is just about driving efficiency in everything. Right. And clean tech is about providing a more efficient source of energy or energy usage for the most part. And so if we're able to now harness data captured in solar fields, solar arrays, wind farms, GE talks a lot about, a lot about this with their Predix platform and wind farms. If we actually know the data from our wind farms and we can better optimize that and tie it into climate data and better position for the most capacity factor we can get out of our wind farm, that makes it shortly more efficient. And then ultimately, that, and to get back to the subsidy question, the rebate question, if all of that brings you back to a lower, unsubsidized, levelized cost of energy in the clean tech space, then the subsidy question goes out, out the table. Then you just have a better, cheaper, more efficient form of energy. Right. And that's how I tie it all back in. It's exciting. And I think, you know, when we look across demand management, you know, the fact that I think so many folks in the industry get stuck in their verticals. Right, whether it be solar or wind, or if you're an energy efficiency guy, or you're an EV person, but the more that all of these different pieces are interconnected, the better that we can manage them, the more efficient the whole system is going to be, which I think is getting really exciting. It obviously leads to some real challenges, both on an infrastructure front and a cyber front, but those are challenges we can overcome and really drive the change that I think will bring really the best thing for the consumer. It's a super complex solution to solve, I think, mainly because of your comment about silos. Right. But, you know, I think we will see more and more success stories in this space, and, and that usually breeds a lot of cooperation. Absolutely. So one last question before sort of our standard final question. So with that, right, with that momentum, and actually really, I think, you know, with that, those challenges of the siloing, what do you sort of see as the greatest financing challenges coming for us to increase that deployment of clean energy and really to take it to the next level? For clean energy, I think, I think the biggest financing challenge right now that I see is that there is no common goal laid out at the governmental level. Right. In my opinion, that's caused a lot of pause in how people think about deploying their capital, or at least cause a lot of uncertainty. I think if you tally up the dollars that desperately want to invest in environmentally beneficial technologies, which is include clean technology, wind, solar, building efficiency software, you name it, that demand is probably extraordinarily high. Releasing that capital becomes a bigger challenge because there hasn't been, you know, a lot of success stories over the past decade in the clean energy space. So there's been a handful of extremely successful outcomes, and there's been a lot of mediocre to unsuccessful outcomes. And I think we need a target or a goal in mind that people can all coalesce around to redeploy capital back into the space. The Breakthrough Energy Coalition guys, I think, kind of have it right for a lot of this sector. It's not a two to five year return investment. Right. It's going to take longer in a lot of these cases to mature and gestate. And so having a longer investment horizon is probably really important right now. That's super helpful. It's going to be interesting to see as the breakthrough really starts to come out of its shell here and as it's deploying money, taking that thesis and implementing it, it's going to be, I think, exciting for the market as a whole. Hopefully it can 
bring some others along with it. So finally, you know, the standard question here, Chris, that we ask for folks, because I think we have an audience that ranges from industry experts to folks just trying to learn about the industry to college students, right? So if you could go back to yourself when you were playing football and pole vaulting at Stanford and could sit down and have a coffee and provide some advice, what advice would you give? <laughs> back to my college self? Or high school self. <laughs> I mean, in today's day and age, I would have told myself, you know, spend more time, like really understanding the fundamentals of technology, to be clear. Like, I think that, you know, the next five to 10 years, a lot of the new and more interesting developments are going to be around for better or for worse. And you can go either ways on this artificial intelligence and the use of software to empower what has historically been a hardware driven business. But I would have spent more time on the technology side. I have spent a lot of time in the technology side, but I would have liked to have started a lot earlier, put it that way. You know, to me, it was when I left, it was about following my passion. My passion was in technology. My passion expanded into energy technology along well. So I would really say, you know, absent being able to code, which I don't know how to code. And, right. and I think you need to know how to code. It would be just you know, find something that you're very passionate about and go after it. We just had the chief data scientist from Ancestry.com join us as an advisor at Clean Capital and having her insights into what's happening in the data space and the machine learning space and how we can sort of begin to implement that across our projects has been just really fascinating. And we're learning so much about sort of taking all that to the next level. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time. I think we covered a, a variety of topics. Thanks for your patience. And we are really excited to continue this conversation in the future. And really just thanks for being our guest. Thanks, John. Well, I want to thank Chris Budden for joining us. What a fascinating conversation. And ask that you go to cleancapital.com. You can find other conversations that we've had here at the Experts Only podcast. I want to thank our producers, Emily Connor and Lauren Glickman. And ask you that you go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a positive review, a five-star review. And we look forward to continuing this conversation as we explore the intersections of energy, innovation, and finance. Thanks.